Well, hello there, and welcome to the podcast where our goal is to remind you that amidst the chaos and craziness of the world today, there are still plenty of good things that are worth shouting about. In each episode of this podcast, we're going to be joined by nonprofit professionals, leaders, experts, and advocates to hear their stories, facilitate conversation and connection within the nonprofit sector, and hopefully put a smile on your face. We like that. I'm Matt Barnes. This is Nonprofit Connect. Let's share some good. Well, hello there, and welcome to the second episode of Nonprofit Connect. It's our second episode. We made it. Yay. We made it all the way from episode one to two, and the fake audience that we have here is very excited. Today, we have a really great guest talking about some really practical stuff that I'm excited about. This is a guy I just met recently, but we immediately hit it off because we have a lot in common, it seems, and we'll touch on some of that. His name is Chris Bayaki. He is the founder and CEO of Resolute Philanthropy. Resolute Philanthropy, bringing more than 20 years of Chris's nonprofit experience and is supported by his passion for leadership development and creativity. He has previously worked with organizations like Project Access as their chief development officer, Habitat for Humanity of Orange County as their senior vice president, and Orange County Great Parks as their development officer. Uh, he's going to be touching on the topic of fundraising because this is his kind of bread and butter, and this guy knows what he's talking about. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the fears in fundraising and how to overcome them and and some of the best ways to go about fundraising because for you nonprofits out there, you know, you got to do it, right? It may seem like a necessary evil, but I think after you hear what Chris has to say, you might think about it a little bit differently, and I'm, I'm excited for you to hear what he has to say. So I don't want to give too much away. We're going to kick off this second episode and welcome Chris right after this brief message. Nonprofit Connect with Matt Barnes is brought to you by Rogue Creatives. Rogue Creatives is a creative agency that works mostly with nonprofits to make sure that their brand character is being represented accurately. So here's the thing. If you think of your favorite book or your favorite movie or show or whatever, there's usually some character that you identify with, something that you connect with that brings you into that story and makes you come back to that story that makes you feel a part of that story and related to it. The same is true with your organization. See, people don't naturally connect with organizations. They just don't. They care about people and they care about character and they want to connect with those things. And that's why Rogue Creatives has developed a three-phase process called the Strategic Storytelling Framework. And it's designed to identify your brand character, its personality, its voice, its values, and then make sure that it comes to life so you're represented cohesively and accurately. No matter how people come into contact with you, whether it's a business card or website or social media, a video, a print piece, whatever, they're connecting with the same character and being brought into your story. And the best part is it frees you up to do just what you love to do or what you're best at. And you can rest easy knowing that you're still being represented out there so well and so accurately. And you have a team on your side making sure that this is happening consistently and cohesively. So head on over to roguecreatives.com NPC for Nonprofit Connect. NPC to schedule a free brand consultation and take our free online brand character quiz. Because, you know, everybody loves a free online quiz. Those are fun. That's roguecreatives.com slash NPC to begin defining your brand character today. We've worked with uh, so many nonprofits and helped them increase their funding and their reach as they connect with more people and bring them into their stories. There's no commitment or risk for you at all. And we just can't wait to meet you. Like we're we're actually just sitting around here waiting to meet you. We want to. Remember, that's roguecreatives.com slash NPC to get started today. Rogue Creatives. Seriously, creative storytelling. And now, 
Back to the show. Show, show, show. All right. I'm here with Chris Bayaki. Perfect. I was really worried I was going to say it wrong. <laughs> Last week I was doing our trailer episode mm-hmm. and we were mentioning like a couple guests that we had already booked. Like this person's coming, Susan, and who was in our first episode. And then I started to read your name and I thought, oh, crap. So then I hit pause. I went to my computer. I pulled up the audio from the live event we did <laughs> to hear how you said it, how you introduced yourself. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. Is it? How do you get it? How do people say it? Most people say Bayachi. Bayachi. That's what I would have said. Yeah, that's the most traditional. Although I get all sorts of like wild pronunciations. <laughs> well, you have a very impressive resume, which I already kind of talked about in the intro. But before we get into all of that, we open every episode and this is our second one. So every every episode. episode longstanding tradition. <laughs> longstanding tradition. It goes all the way back to last week with three random questions. So I have a list of like just random questions and then we randomly select three. So it's double random. And then I love you it. just start hating the word random because we say it too much. Okay, so here we go. If you could host a podcast on any topic, what would it be? Well, the straightforward answer would be about the work I do, about fundraising okay. and fundraising strategy. I mean, I think like a pop culture podcast, okay. like nerdy stuff. Like Oh, good. I mean, I could talk for hours about the last season of Picard. I mean, there's lots of like, okay, there's so we'll lots be hanging out a little bit on. after this and talking. Okay. The last cool, season cool. of Picard was excellent. Oh, and God, I, I, if they had not done that, then the first two seasons would have just made me cry for other reasons if they had just left it that way. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had a web show I did for a little while and a podcast called Nerdy Pop with uh, Rob Liefeld, who was a friend of mine who created Deadpool. And yeah, that was years ago. But yes, that's definitely my other area if I was not doing this podcast. I do a parenting one with my wife as well. But yeah, we actually tried to keep Nerdy Pop going as a podcast. But man, I just as I had kids, you can't keep up with all the movies coming out. Oh, no, no, no. How do you talk about all this stuff? I'm like. I never get to go anymore. No, no. My pop culture knowledge definitely has a end yeah, date. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Question two. Where did you think you would be at this age when you were a kid? Oh, my goodness. When I was a real little kid, I wanted to be, I think, like all little kids, I wanted to be a paleontologist because I like oh, dinosaurs. Yeah, dinosaurs. So I just sure. wanted to like do things with dinosaurs. And then after that, there was a while where I was pretty serious about wanting to be an astronaut. So I think maybe I thought I would be an astronaut by Did you now. see Space Camp and just like, I have to do that? Man, I, I saw it. You went? I went. <gasps> and technically, we have so much to talk about. Technically, I went to the U.S. Space Academy, which is where you go to that space camp when you're in like junior high. So it's a little bit older. I went twice. So I was pretty. I'm very jealous of you. Right now. Well, you know, then I, then I got into algebra two and things changed. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. I don't know what's going on. Math anymore. is hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And finally, what is your go-to karaoke song or what would it be if you had one? I don't have one. So if I was to have a go-to karaoke song, boy, let's go with Birdhouse in Your Soul by They Might Be Giants. Wow. Yeah. Favorite band. Very good. Might as well go with like a, a, you know, there's lots of deep cuts you could go with. First of all, I think most people listening probably have no idea what that is. Probably not. I love that song. That's fantastic. Some of this stuff's just for you. Okay. 
Wow. I feel like you did your research on me and just gave answers that I would be happy with. <laughs> I honestly didn't, although I did clock a Pacific Rim toy box oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. the hallway. That's actually Rob's. Oh. Okay. He, I got to give it back to him from back when we did Nerdy Pop. He accidentally left it there, yeah. But yes, They Might Be Giants Flood on my wall in my office. It's a heck of an album. All it's right. It's a great album. Okay. So what drew you into nonprofits in the beginning? Let's start at the beginning of your nonprofit journey. What drew you to the sector? Well, like many people, I kind of stumbled into the sector. So I education background, I studied journalism at Chapman University. I was on student newspapers from seventh grade all the way through college. And then after graduation, I got a job at the Orange County Business Journal. And so there I was living, like living the dream, actually writing for a newspaper, doing the whole thing. And I just wasn't fulfilling. So I ended up at a in the corporate communications team for a large nonprofit healthcare company. At the time, it was called St. Joseph Health System. And so that was my first real like nonprofit job. And I was really enjoying that work. And in the course of that job, I volunteered on a employee giving campaign committee where all the corporate employees had the opportunity to make a donation to one of the ministries supported by the Sisters of St. Joseph. And I did that for six years. And I ran this fundraising campaign with another team and really fell in love with direct fundraising. And it was in that moment when I was approached by a gentleman named Frank Hall, who was the head of development for the system. He asked me if I'd ever considered doing fundraising as a career. And I said, no. And he said, don't worry, no one does. And let's let's talk about it. (laughs) And that's what led me into doing moving from nonprofit communications to nonprofit fundraising. And that's really where I went from there. And it just, upon reflection, what was happening is the, what really appealed to me about student journalism was that feeling that you were using your talents for good. Like yeah. there's a real, at least there used to be back in the day, yeah, yeah, there yeah. was a real like sense of like us versus them, you know, fighting. The archetype of the crusading journalist is alive and well in the student journalism world. And, and then I, they beat it out of you when you go work for big, <laughs> big journalism. Precisely. That's just, that's, you know, <laughs> but working for a nonprofit in the communication side and especially in the fundraising side, I got that feeling again of like, I'm using what I can do to make the world a better place in a very real way. And that's what really what appeals to me. Yeah. Cause I mean, fundraising to me is like the math of the nonprofit world. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, it's that and grant writing where I'm like, nope, no thanks. Bye. Like they're the hard ones, right? Like they're the ones where you're just like, I don't want to deal with that. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's tedious. It's whatever, fill in whatever adjectives. So why, I mean, why fundraising? What was it about that in particular that you thought, yeah, let's do this thing that most people hate or are scared of? <laughs> You know, I think it comes down to the fact that in the absence of like massive societal change, the only way most people are going to impact the world is through philanthropy. And I think there's something really compelling and really exciting about being a bridge for that for people. Like a fundraiser's real job, I think, is showing the world there's an avenue that they can take, that they can improve things, that they can put their values into action, that they can take action and see change in the world. And I like being a part of that. I like talking to people about the missions I'm involved with. I like showing them a way that they can, you know, get involved and make things happen. I think it's when done right, it is a really engaging and powerful and fun thing to do. But you're right. It is very hard. And there's lots of emotional baggage that comes with it because you're dealing with money. You're opening yourself up to like a metric ton of rejection. There's some real challenges there, but I don't know of any other way, or I'll say it this way. 
I think for me, it's the best way that I can use my skills and my privilege and my place in the world to really go to bat for other people and to help people do that too. To say like, no, yeah, the world is rough and there's lots of bad things out there, but here's one thing you can do today to help somebody else. Yeah. And I think there's a power there. Yeah. So for you, what did you feel like you had to overcome those things or is that something that you just naturally feel comfortable? Like, you know, some people just feel comfortable going like, no, you just got to do this or you just got to do that. Where for me, that that might be an intimidating. I don't want to call somebody asking for money or, you know, that type of thing. I've always been comfortable, you know, communicating and advocating for things. And even in my student journalism days, I was, you know, having a, a leadership role on, you know, the college paper. And that's not, I mean, if you can get a table full of yeah. <laughs> college students to hit a deadline, you know, you can do some management fun. So that part of like encouraging and engaging and building a team was always part of my skill set. So that always felt good. So it's really kind of a small step from asking someone to get involved and then just putting a dollar amount on that or, or saying, here's what I really need you to do, being specific about it. So now you're the founder and CEO of Resolute Philanthropy, which is you began last year. Give me the elevator pitch. What is what's Resolute? So Resolute Philanthropy, we help nonprofits build confidence and clarity in their fundraising. It's been my experience that when fundraising fails in an organization, it fails because of a lack of strategy, a lack of leadership, or a lack of attitude. And I like to bring those three things to the table to help nonprofits really reclaim their strategy, sharpen up their leadership, and really own their attitude about yeah. fundraising. And we do that through strategic planning and coaching and board training and staff training and project management. But it's really all about getting nonprofits to understand that their fundraising has to be their fundraising. You can't just pick, you can't watch every other nonprofit and just do what they do. You have to do something that speaks your language or sings your song. And at Resolute, I like people, I like to help people find that song and build a fundraising strategy that supports their mission in a really real and authentic way. And you're a for-profit or non-profit? I'm a for-profit. For-profit. Perfect. So, which I love. I love for-profits that are really focused on helping non-profits and being more effective. And I think also, and this is probably a whole other conversation we could get into, which is definitely tied to fundraising, but, you know, non-profits investing in themselves and investing the funds in themselves and to grow. There's a big stigma there of where you put your funds, and I, we'll probably touch on that a bit later. You know, what I love also is obviously Nonprofit Connect, the whole point of this and the live events is helping nonprofits connect with each other and learn from each other and gain outside perspective. And because it doesn't happen that often. Right. Where they're all, we all get in our bubbles, right? And I think a lot of nonprofits, you know, I mean, even at the kickoff event we did last month, afterwards, people are going to each other, wait, you do tell me more about this and can you help me figure this out? And which is what I wanted. Like that was the goal, right? I'm going, okay, cool. This is working. What do you think are the main obstacles that get in the way of nonprofits connecting and being part of a larger community? I think the biggest obstacle is that scarcity mindset that so many nonprofits are in, where they are afraid that if I connect with another nonprofit, my donors are going to leave me, that my donors are going to you know, see what's going on on that side. They're going to go and they're never going to come back. And so I've got to keep them close and I don't want my donors to talk to you. So I don't want to talk to you. So we're going to just be over here. And I think that's a really deep-seated fear in a lot of organizations, and I think that drives a lot of that resistance to collaboration. I think the other play is it's just time, right? Yeah. I don't know any nonprofits that have time. Everyone is like to the max, so many people, everyone's doing everything, and it's just to say like, okay, now you've got to go build this bridge and build a brand new strategic model or a new partnership model. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's, one man, more, like, it's just one, one more thing, thing to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think when you have those two elements at play, yeah, 
you say, well, maybe we'll get to it later. What I love about what you're doing and what we're trying to do with Nonprofit Connect and even through Rogue Creatives with the marketing that we do is to provide those resources, to provide that outside perspective on different areas of what nonprofits are doing because they don't often seek it out and to help them realize like, no, this is an area you can invest that will help you grow, be more effective, actually help more people and can take some of the load off of you as feeling like you have to figure all of this out yourself. Because that's, I mean, I think, you know, there's something about nonprofits in particular and some of it's maybe personality. I don't know. We should do a big study on it or something, but of like, oh, I just, I got to figure it out. I got to figure it out myself. I got to make this happen. But I mean, it's just, no, it's, it's not it's, an effective mindset. It's a mindset that it kind of goes back to scarcity where there's no one else to help you. You've got to do it all. Some of it is a little bit of, you know, you get a little bit of a martyr complex where you're like, I've got to be the one to do it. It's faster if I do it. I can't yeah, teach yeah, yeah. you to do it. It's faster if I do it. Right. And that's really like appealing thinking for a lot of people. Like it's easy to fall. I've fallen into that trap. It's really easy to fall. But to actually take a break and be like, there might be somebody out there that does this thing better than we do it. How can we partner with them? Because you get there, I think, by centering the people you serve. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. The people we're serving, what's the best thing for them? Maybe that is a partnership. Maybe that is a collaboration. Maybe it doesn't even have to be a formal thing. Maybe it's just having another nonprofit come speak to your clients and vice versa. Like even starting in those small steps yeah. can open things up if we imagine that the most important thing we can do is serve the health and quality of life of the people we're serving. Sure. Yes. That's so great. Let's get into some of your perspectives on fundraising. I think, again, normally we want this to be something that people who are listening, who are working with nonprofits, running nonprofits, whatever it might be, can gain some perspective from other people. I think you've got such a wide experience with 20 years of doing fundraising at different nonprofits. What do you find are some of the most effective ways to go about fundraising? So obviously there's no such thing as one size fits all. But that caveat aside, I think effective fundraising is really tied to authenticity. And your fundraising channels need to be an authentic representation of what your company does and who your company is. And that can be hard to determine. You actually have to give it some thought. The standard thing I punch down on a lot is the overabundance or the overreliance on special events that aren't really thought out well or aren't really supportive. And they're kind of a thing that exists because someone once said they liked it and it's just kind of there. Or it's just the thing that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do. Yeah. Here's a positive example. When I was working for Habitat for Humanity of Orange County, one of their chief fundraising activities, and they still do it to this day, is a called the Leaders Build Challenge. And it's a day where CEOs come and they build on the job side and they have games and competitions and, and it's it's really unique to Habitat. It is only something uh, Habitat could do. It's really a direct tie to a mission. It's a real specific thing. So your fundraising needs to be specific. Your fundraising also needs to be direct, meaning that I see a lot of nonprofits and a lot of nonprofit professionals stumble at the very end of the equation when they say something like, Matt, you've been a great partner to our organization for so long. I'd really love to have you consider supporting us next year. Well, that's great. <laughs> but what is Matt to do with that? Instead of saying, Matt, I'd like you to consider a gift of $1,000. Or Matt, I'd like you to sign up to be a $20 a month donor. Or Matt, I'd like you to make a $10,000. That getting to the ask, making your fundraising actual direct to a point where you're making the ask and, and putting that ask in front of people, that's the heart of effective fundraising too. Because if you are always leaving it unsaid, or if you're always assuming the donor knows what you need, you will always be disappointed. 
And it's like anything else in life. You get what you ask for. You've got to get out there in the right. world and ask. And I think the third element of effective fundraising is you have to invest in fundraising. It takes time. And one of the challenges of fundraising is that it is a long-term process that is often held accountable to short-term goals. Like to build a relationship with someone who may one day be a major donor. You're talking literal months, maybe years of relationship building. But at the same time, you have to be like, well, I got to hit my numbers. I've got to do these things every month to make, you know, to keep the lights on. So you've got to balance that, but you've got to invest in, you've got to invest in your fundraising staff, in their training, in their background, in their, you know, if you've got a, you need a donor database, you need all those things. If you're expecting fundraising to happen without investing, if you're expecting fundraising to happen without hiring a professional fundraiser, you're going to be in trouble because you do need people to do it and you need to pay those people to do it. And you need a system in which they can do it because all those things help develop the foundation for these long-term relationships you want to build with people. Well, it's the same. I mean, this comes up all the time of and I always forget where who it was that that I saw, but it was somebody did a a TED talk probably 15 years ago. And it was on this idea of, you know, nonprofits really need to start running themselves like for profits. They need to hire the right people. They need to invest in themselves in that way. They need to pay people what they're worth. And that will grow you the way that you want to be grown. Whereas if you're like if you're just trying to do it all yourself or skimping to get by, you know, whatever. You're never going to grow. You're never going to get outside that mindset. And so, but again, like we said before, it's that hard to justify bit because our donors are so used to hearing 95 cents of every dollar goes straight to the cause and all this stuff, which sounds fantastic, right? Like it sounds great if you don't think about it too much, right? (laughs) But the reality is, okay, great, but you're not going to give as many dollars as somebody who it's, you know, 50 cents or whatever it is because they're building the infrastructure, they're building what needs to be done that in the end, they're going to help a lot more people. How do you help people get over that hump? How do you help people realize that investing in yourself, whether that's for you, obviously through fundraising, for me, it's a lot of talking about you know, branding and marketing and all that. How do we bring people on board with that? Well, the good news is there's lots of other people that have this philosophy. And the TED Talk you might be referring to is Overhead Myth Talk by Dan Pallotta. And he's got a book called Uncharitable. And they're, they're going to release it as a movie, I think, later this oh, cool. year, which is a really interesting look at how this myth of overhead as a bad thing, how that really grew, how it really was this kind of like insidious thought that a lot hurt and continues to hurt a lot of nonprofits. So one thing we can do is really have those frank conversations with our donors about why we need their help and what that help looks like. And like you said, it's the idea that overhead is bad or, or paying people what they're worth is bad is a thought exercise that falls apart really quickly with any scrutiny. And sometimes we have to walk our donors through that thought exercise. Like, you know, if this was a business, how would you run it? Like if this was a business, would you pay people what they're worth? Or is it better for us to invest in salaries now or to engage a recruiting firm every 18 months because we're losing people? We have to rehire them and retrain them and all that. So sometimes it's just having that conversation. And other times it's just being, and this is where it gets back to attitude, really being bold that the missions we're trying to achieve in the nonprofit space, I don't know of any, there's some out there, there's a lot of nonprofits, but most nonprofits are started because they see a significant need or an injustice that they're trying to address. We can't afford to Mickey Mouse around it. We can't afford to dance around the issues. We need to say, if we want to feed this community or house this community or make sure these kids in this neighborhood get access to this kind of education, we need the best people we can 
fighting with us. We need to invest in our people so they have the right skills and we need an infrastructure so they can get paid on time and they can, you know, all that stuff has to happen because if it doesn't, then we'll never, then it's just performative. Then we're just like moving deck chairs on the Titanic. We're asking because we're trying to fight a battle that's really important to fight. And that goes back to, you know, fundraising effectiveness. It's really less about asking and more about inviting our donors to join us in this cause. And if you think you're a part of a cause, I think you'll be more prone to say, yeah, that makes sense. I want you, the nonprofit, I want you to spend this donation the best way you can. I don't necessarily want to dictate to you how it got spent because you know more than I do. And, you know, to, to also to get their nonprofits need to own their expertise and to be say like, no, we are the experts in yes. this topic and this is what I need to get there. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of my philosophies when we're working with nonprofits has always been Nonprofits tend to be, on their marketing side, tempted to use the sob stories. And the sob stories, in my experience, they get people to maybe make a one-time donation to kind of assuage their guilt and pat themselves on the back and walk away and be like, I, I helped, I helped. But it's so much more effective to, yes, show the problem, but show what you're doing to solve it. Show what and how exciting that is. People want to be a part of something. I mean, now more than ever with, you know, there's not a great sense of hope a lot of times yeah. in the world to give people that excitement, that hope, something they want to be a part of. And you're join, inviting them to join you in this exciting thing that's happening and to help take it to the next place. That you get people who join the story. You get people who come along for the ride and you're going to get more than just the one time $20 donation to make themselves feel better. You're going to get a partner. And that is something that not all, but a lot of our nonprofit clients, it takes a while to get them on board with because they're just so used to, you got to tell the sob story. You got to pull the heartstrings. You got to make them cry. Get that dog picture on TV and yeah, get exactly. that Sarah McLaughlin song. I'm like, here <laughs> exactly. you go. And <laughs> it works, right? But does it work long term? It's short term thinking. Precisely. It's that we've got to make the goal for this campaign. And I'm going, no, we need to think about long term. We need to think about, I would rather get somebody who's going to donate for this campaign and the next campaign and because they keep seeing what's going on there. And you're bringing them up to date and showing them like how their investment is paying off. And you know, those type of things you get excited about, yeah. you know, when yeah. I donate to something and then six months later, I get an, I see how that donation has paid off, that people's lives have been changed because I did that. I feel like I'm a part and then I want to, OK, what am I investing in next? And it's a different kind of investment. Obviously, I'm not getting my financial return on it, but it's an investment in, you know, people's lives. And it's very rewarding that way. Absolutely. And another thing to consider when we're talking about those sad stories or the stories of the problem especially when you're dealing with people, sometimes that doesn't really support the dignity of the person if that's all you tell. Like we have to believe that we're more than the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And sometimes nonprofits fall into a trap where that's all they're showing is like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to this person and we're going to dwell in this story. And it's a really fine line. You do have to show this is the problem we're trying to address. But if that's all you ever show, what you're, I think, inadvertently saying is we're not solving this problem. Yeah. Like we're just finding more of it. Like at some point you have to say, and that's where that being bold about it has to come in because you don't have to say we've solved it. You can say, this is what we're trying. And oh my, this didn't work. We tried something else. Like you don't have to put the rose colored glasses on or have a storyline where it's like, we've solved it. We know what we're doing. It's 100% sorted because that actually, that goes to the other direction of a problem where now the donors are like, well, if you've solved it, why are you still here? Yeah. So, you know, we need to be... I think we need to trust our donors that they understand complex problems don't get solved overnight. And 
we're on a process to solve these problems and to help these people help our communities. If you're only saying only the bad or only the good, I think we're doing a disservice to our to who our donors are. It's all about it's balance. I mean, you, you really have to find that. And it's balance is in every area of life, much more effort than just we're going to camp out over here or we're going to camp out over here. I mean, politics, whatever it is, it's just, you know, actually taking the time to consider and find what that healthy middle ground is. And it's a lot more effort, but that's where the good stuff happens, you know, and that's where the reality is. I want to shift a little bit. I didn't have this written down. I just thought of this. But I'm just, you know, one of the things that I always find very interesting about a nonprofit versus, you know, starting a business is it's such a different thing. You don't you can't invest your money in it. You're not going to get a return on that investment, you know, financially. So I can't go, you know, raise this money or whatever, or I've put my own money aside and I'm going to put it in so that I can hopefully get successful and, you know, whatever. When you start a nonprofit, have you worked with people on that, on sort of the startup part and the funding of that? And because we want to get the right people and we want to get the infrastructure in place, but that's an expensive thing, especially when you're not going to earn that money back. You know, there's a couple of ways, I think, to look at the problem. One is, and I think probably first off, I think starting a nonprofit is a very serious decision and should be treated as such. Yes. Like, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? Is there anybody else doing this work? Are they doing the same thing you're going to want to be doing? And if so, why aren't you partnering with them or embracing them? Are you sure it's not a social enterprise, which is a, a for-profit business with a mission-driven ethos? Because that can be a very effective way to affect change. But if you're absolutely sure, and it's got to be a nonprofit, then you know you can look at, there's agencies out there, there's fiscal sponsorship agencies like 1OC or Charitable Ventures in Orange County that can give some of that backbone infrastructure to you in your early days, like everything from HR to finance. So you can get some experts in the room to help you grow in that direction. Beyond that, if you're starting a nonprofit, it's such a crowded field. There's so many nonprofits out there. I think you have a really good plan and treat it again. You hear this all the time. It's hundred percent true. It's just like any other business. Like the only, I've told people this before that, you know, nonprofit is just a description of your tax status. It actually yeah. doesn't describe what you do or how you do it. So you've got to have a strong plan. You've got to have a fundraising plan. You've got to understand where you're, you've got to experiment and look for revenue streams that are not tied to fundraising. What are some of those revenue opportunities that are out there in your field that you can do? And there's great success stories out there. And I mean, the big one, you look at Orange County, the Goodwill of Orange County. Goodwill's like the poster child of this huge, fantastic revenue stream that's mission adjacent plus their donations. It frees them up to really have some exciting conversations with their donors. Obviously, you know, a startup nonprofit isn't going to get there right away, but you do have to imagine, think about the revenue as its own thing and fundraising is one way to get the revenue, but it's complicated. It's again, are you sure? Yeah. Be really sure. Yeah, for sure. But I love what you said. I love the mindset of nonprofit as a tax status, not a job description. <laughs> you know, it, I think that's huge because I've never thought of it that way until you said it, but you're like, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. But it's a great reminder that you got to invest and you got to treat it the same as you would if you're starting a business. Absolutely. And if you have two other things, one, that idea that the name nonprofit is only about tax status, it's not about culture, it's not about fit. You need to think about that if you're in the job market and you're looking to work in a nonprofit. I've talked to people who think going into the nonprofit world is like going into some like, I don't know, holodeck, magic, beautiful <laughs> time where yeah. everything is beautiful rainbows. And it's not like it's, no. it's a job and there's stuff about it that's going to hurt. You've got to really be sure about the culture. You've got to make sure you're going to be valued in that room. The other thing, if you're starting a nonprofit, your board of directors needs to understand 
deep down understand that being a nonprofit doesn't mean things are going to be easier. Like they need to have a business acumen. They need to be pushing you as a nonprofit founder to find revenue streams, to build a sustainable base. Well, we work with several organizations that work with people experiencing homelessness. And one of them, I tried to pitch a campaign. They didn't buy it, but I tried to pitch this campaign of like, put us out of a job. We're trying to solve this problem. We don't like, I would be great if in three years we didn't need to exist anymore. That would be awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it was a little too out there for them, but but I'm going to try it again. But I mean, you know, it would be so great if, you know, nonprofits did start up, they solved a problem and then they were able to go, all right. Let's move on. Move to the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One of the things that you are a big proponent of is unrestricted giving. Oh, yes. And I think this is an area that a lot of nonprofits avoid or don't deal with or, you know, because it's so much easier. It seems so much easier or more strategic or whatever to go, okay, it's about this thing and give them a very specific, you know, thing to give to or allow people. They don't feel the comfort to tell people hey, you're going to give us money and let us do whatever we want with it. It's going to go straight to this thing. What's the biggest benefits of unrestricted giving? And then we can get into how do we get there? The biggest benefit is the flexibility, right? You and I both know that stuff happens, right? Stuff you don't plan for. And you need money to solve these problems that are going to come up. You need to pay people. You need to invest in training. You need to put pay the electrical bill. Maybe they're Maybe there's a flood in the basement of your building and you need to fix that. Like there's always that. But even more than those kind of non-mission direct things, what if you come across a new idea and you want to investigate this idea or do this experiment? There's this new way we're going to approach this problem. We've never done it before. There's no map. There's no guide on this. We're going to try it. It's really hard to get a funder to support that because most funders are like, well, show me your results, show me what you've done. You know, they don't like to be first in the pool. So unrestricted funding gives the nonprofit the ability to pursue those leads, to follow those opportunities and to say, we're going to do it this way. We're going to try it and see what we learn and go from there. Essentially, it goes back, you know, this is all the idea of unrestricted fundraising goes back to that overhead myth, you know, combating that idea. It also goes back to that idea that the nonprofit needs to be bold and vocal about what they need and why they need it and how to get people to give unrestricted. Partly is we have to start asking for it all the time. And I found I think individuals are really our most individuals are open to that. There's a lot of grant making organizations that are still really in the program only, you know, mindset. There's some that are not that are do have unrestricted giving and do have unrestricted grants. Those grants are, you know, worth their weight in gold and are great to pursue. But we just have to continue to elevate these conversations with funders and the representatives of corporate foundations and really encourage them to see the value of unrestricted giving. And obviously, I understand why funders don't like it because funders want to make sure that their gift is going to be used in the most efficient and effective way possible. And there's probably nonprofits out there that will drop the ball and not do it right. And of course, but they'll also do that with restricted funding. Right, right. It doesn't really matter at that point. I think it's, you know, there's that idea of I know better than you. And so some people want that of, you know, like you said, some donors, they want to know it's going to be used. But on the nonprofit side, it's the responsibility or the opportunity to set yourself up as the experts. You don't know what the most efficient thing is. We're doing this day to day. We're in here. We need the flexibility to make those decisions as we go. And I think there's, you know, if you can do that and 
and show that it's beneficial, then you're building trust also with your donor base. Because, you know, if you can get those unrestricted donations and then show what you did with them and even tell the stories of we wouldn't have been able to do that because... We wouldn't have known to earmark money for that or to raise funds for that. This is something that came up. You know, we wouldn't have had time to quickly put together a campaign for that thing. You know, we needed to move quickly or whatever it is. We wanted to explore that. And because you did this, you've allowed us to do this. And even sometimes the failures, perhaps, you know, and and we tried this. We didn't work, but here's what we learned. And this is where we're applying it. And it's very valuable. And we're, we're moving forward. But people are, I think, a lot of, you know, nonprofit fundraisers are a lot of times afraid to have that boldness or to speak about what it is that they need and want. And a lot of, I mean, we run into this with our clients sometimes where they'll have a board member who donates a lot of money and there's a lot of strings attached to that money. You know, especially for smaller nonprofits, that's really hard to say no to. You know, what would your advice be for whether small or large? You know, you get these guys that could really fund your whole thing, but they're putting a lot of strings on it. What's your advice to them? I mean, it's easy for me to say because I'm on this side of the microphone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Generally speaking, you need to avoid that. And if you've got a donor that's not willing to have that conversation with you, then that donor is not really there for you. And sometimes I feel like there's donors that are just waiting for an excuse to break up. You know, they're just like, oh, I'm just just waiting. I'm waiting for you to, you know, forget my anniversary or not, you know, whatever it is. But I think if you sit down with a donor and say, you know, Sally, I appreciate the offer of this gift, but these restrictions are going to make it really hard to do what we want to do. And maybe you can meet meet Sally halfway and say, Sally, I'd like you to consider half of your gift being unrestricted and half of your gift going to the program. If they're hell-bent for leather on doing it their way and this money can only be spent in these ways and here's the strings, it's probably time to walk. And that's scary to say. And it's saying no to money is one of the scariest things a nonprofit can do, but it's usually a really good thing. I've done it in my career. I've turned down grants, turned down grant opportunities, said no to gifts, and it always hurts in the beginning, but it's always better because every time I've chased the money at the expense of the relationship or at the expense of the mission, every time I've done that, it's hurt. It's hurt a lot because if you start, you know, it's all about the relationship. And if you're in relationship with someone as a friend or a romantic partner or whatever it is, if you're in relationship with somebody and they start putting asks on top of their affection, like I will only be your friend if you do these things, that conditional, thank you, that conditional work that never lasts, that's never healthy. So, you know, one way I've been thinking about it lately about unrestricted giving is the change in thought around weddings and wedding registries. You get married, you put a registry. So I'm like, all right, I guess I need all these pots and pans. I guess I need all this stuff. And I ask for all this stuff and you get it and it's great. And then years go by, you're like, I don't need any of this stuff. And now I see my younger friends or my cousins getting married and they're like, no, we don't have a registry. We need money for a down payment for a house. That's what I needed. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's what I needed. Yeah. And there's a very similar ethos to what we're talking about with unrestricted giving. Like you need to tell it. But I also, I don't want to leave your point that any giving program, restricted or unrestricted, will fail if you don't have stewardship. If you're not telling your donors the story of their impact. If you're not doing that, it doesn't matter what you ask for because your donors will never come back. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've shared this example before with a lot of people, but during the pandemic, one of our clients actually sent out an email probably about a month into the pandemic once we realized, oh, this could be a while. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember thinking like, oh, how are they going to do what they do with that? They work with people experiencing homelessness and, and they do a great job. And honestly, in my mind, I thought, wow, that just sucks. They can't do it. Like they've got to be just shut down, you know? And they sent out this email that was like this very 
detailed plan of what they've already done to adapt and what they want to continue to do, but they need more funding to do it. And even <laughs> they're a client of ours. I gave, yeah, you know, because I was so moved by. It. I was like, man, that's just the fact that they are a boldly just saying this is what we need, and that they just they're not sitting around waiting for this to get solved. They're just like, okay, we got we got we can't stop what we we're doing. We got to do something. We got to do something. And then months later, even I might have been even almost a year later getting an update on what they accomplished in the first year of the pandemic and that they actually did more in 2020 than they did in 2019 because of the way that the donors stepped up, the way that their team yes, stepped up yes. and they got they had to innovate and it caused them to, you know, really like re-examine the way they do a lot of things, not just even pandemic related. It started to trickle. And the lives that were changed because of that. And I'm like, dude, I'm in. Because it was a tangible, it was, here's, we asked for this. Here's what happened. Here's what we're able to do. What can we do next? Now some of these COVID restrictions are coming down. We can even spread this further. And then on the agency side, I'm going like, man, I we can build on that story. How can we, uh, you know, help you take that to the next level? And then, you know, we were able to do house 100 more people in the next year. And it was just so yeah, cool. That, that's I mean, when you treat your donors like partners in your cause and not like their children who don't understand or not like their temperamental people who are going to take their money and run at the first sign of change or trouble. And there will be people that leave when stuff like that happens. But oh, well, there'll be more that stay and more that continue. Awesome. Well, I think I'm going to have to have you back sometime because there's so much more that we could talk about in all these areas. Yeah. Do you want to do another 45 yeah. on, they, on They Might Be <laughs> part, Giants? Part I can two, do that yeah, too. Right? Okay. <laughs> we'll do one on Star Trek Picard season three and then one on They Might Be Giants. Okay. But we like to end in every episode, of course, with just some rapid fire questions. So quick answers. What's the one thing that makes you feel connected? Oh, my God. Rapid fire answers. And I, I completely <laughs> blank. The thing that makes me feel connected is hearing stories from other people. How do you connect to your community? Working with nonprofits, helping them do what they do. Who in the world of nonprofits would you most like to take to lunch? Oh, my goodness. Oh, there's so many. I'm going to say Dan Pilata, the guy who wrote Uncharitable. That's great. Who in the nonprofit community do you think we should interview next? Oh, okay. You already talked to Susan. She's one of my first choices. You know, Nicole Shudam from Goodwill OC. She's the CEO of Goodwill Orange County. Fantastic nonprofit leader and fundraiser. Awesome. Who do you look up to or inspires you in the world of nonprofits? There's a nonprofit consultant uh, named Jason Lewis that I follow on LinkedIn. He's fantastic. There's a ton of local talent here. Chris Looney, Laval Brewer, Melissa Martinez. I could go on and on. There's just a ton of really talented people out here. And finally, what aspect of your job brings you the most joy? I love it when I can see a nonprofit leader, when I can see the light bulb go on, when they realize, oh, we can do this. Like this isn't, it's not impossible. It's not magic. It's hard work, but we can do it. And that's a good feeling. That's awesome. Chris, thanks so much for coming today. Thanks for having me. This is fantastic. Where can people find you? My website is resolutephilanthropy.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. And I'm Chris Biocchi, B-A-I-O-C-C-H-I. Awesome. The only one. Well, we will definitely be having you back. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And my friends, that is a wrap for today. If you made it this far, and I don't know why you wouldn't, because pretty awesome. Thank you so much for listening to Nonprofit Connect. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate it because we really appreciate it a lot and it's hard to say. Really, well. We really would like it though if you came back for our next episode. Only if you liked it, obviously. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use and visit our website npconnect.roguecreatives.com Hopefully we've managed to share insights to make you feel connected and even a smidge better about your life. 
in the world and everything. Are our goals too high? Maybe. But that's how we like things. All right. You have yourself a great day. Bye-bye. Nonprofit Connect with Matt Barnes is hosted and executive produced by me, Matt Barnes. Production is by our amazing friends over at Fame, the B2B podcast agency, along with the team at Rogue Creatives. Production lead is Ella Lamprell of Fame. Writing is by Sam Hollis at Fame and Matt Barnes and Taylor Palanos from Rogue Creatives. Nemanja Koljaja of Fame is our audio editor and Arslan Yakub from Fame is our video editor. Creative direction is by Corey Hill of Rogue. Our artwork is designed by Hope O'Kelly and Joshua Marino at Rogue and Ian Salas of Fame. Theme music is composed and performed by Jared Atherton of Chapters. LL Amprell of Fame does our booking and guest relations. And Belinda Carter-Thompson of Rogue is the glue that holds it all together. We'd love to give a shout out to our amazing guests for joining us this episode. And thank all of you incredible listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to help us spread some good by giving us a good review. Preferably, you know, five stars with some words saying how amazing we are. That's always helpful. Also, tell your friends and subscribe so we can come straight into your potholes each and every time we have a new episode. We'll catch you next time. Bye. This has been a Rogue Creatives production.